Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of I'm Not Your Shrink. I am your host, Dr. Tracy Dalgleish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. Today, I am sitting with Lindsay Brian Podvin. She is a financial therapist and social worker, and we are talking about all things finances, the emotions behind money, and tips to help couples start to deal with this really difficult conversation. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and thanks for tuning in. So Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Tracy. Thank you. So you, I think you're in Michigan, is that correct? I am. I'm in Ann Arbor, so I'm about 30 minutes outside of Detroit. Right. So I'm in Ottawa and we are still, we just had another 15 centimeters of snow dumping down, which is pretty crazy. Um, But I am so excited to talk about all things financial therapy today. And even just getting started, I was thinking about my own education and we just don't really talk about money or the meaning of money in our schooling. We do not. I was thinking about, I mean, I I went into this field for a reason, but I was trying to recall times that we talked about money. I had my training as a clinical social worker and the closest we got was when I was in another taboo class. I was in a class on death and dying, super Mm -hmm. uplifting, Um, (laughs) but we talked about um, managing how to prepare for end of life in terms of making sure that your financial planning is all in order. But that's as close as we ever got to discussing money. And that really was just like a blip, a a very, very small blip. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And and So even just starting off for people who are listening, what are some of those challenges that you see um, with women and money? There's, There's so much and it's really complex. I think women and money is tricky because it's almost marketed, at least the jargon I feel is marketed in a way that it's really intimidating and scary and it's all these acronyms. Mm. Um, And I think that it's, it's just not easily accessible, even though when you actually look at money, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy. It's basic, basic math, but the bulk of it is really an emotional barrier to looking at it, to engaging with it, to deciding what you want that money to do for you. So the money itself is easy. Mm-hmm. It's getting into that psychological space to address it that is hard. So what is that emotional barrier? What what are those kinds of things that you see? It's all over the place, and I will be very broad, but I would say in general what I tend to see with women is this sensation of ickiness when it comes to money, feeling gross talking about it, feeling like it's taboo, feeling like it's not polite. So I think we kind of turn away from it because we've associated it with something that is bad or dirty or gross. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced that yourself? No. <laughs> so I realized I'm an outlier. <laughs> I am an outlier. I have almost always been interested in money and I've I've just I've always found it really interesting and fascinating and empowering and that was really how I was like, oh, wow, most people actually don't feel this way right. about money. And as the more I get to know not just women but clients in general, the more I realize how much of an outlier I am. 
Right, right. So you feel that it's empowering, but for most people that you see, it's this ickiness or it's taboo or we shouldn't talk about it or it even kind of feeds into this worthiness for women, eh? Like what is your worth? Do you know your worth? Yes, yes, absolutely. And we, it can go both ways. On the one hand, you can get really sucked up in the numbers and the net worth being reflective of your worth as a person or it can go the other way. Like I'm not worthy to earn money or to have money. So it's, it's a really tricky space. Mm, that is so hard, especially when it comes to, you know, I'm just thinking about, well, so for the listeners, you and I have an Instagram relationship. We sure do. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have met and courted each other on Instagram. Yes. Um, but even when I think of everything that's being posted in social media, you know, talking about, um, you know, the year of the woman or women taking over, but being able to talk about finances and, um, what you're doing with your money, or if you should be asking for more money, if your service is worth more money, this is something that's really hard. It's really hard. And especially in the fields of mental health. So I don't have the exact statistic off the top of my head, but for people who are in the fields of social work, psychology, um, and psychiatry, we tend to be the people who accept lower pay. And we tend to be the mm. people who are more like to not advocate for things like raises, which is oh, that's interesting. so wild because we are really good at advocating for our clients and helping them feel empowered. But when it comes to our own finances, our own money, there still is something there. It's, it's almost like you can't get over the idea of you can be helpful and a charitable person and earn a good income. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about a conversation I had with a colleague about how um, we tend to be a bit more avoidant around difficult conversations because we are so in tune with our emotions and a lot of tough emotions come up and we want to avoid that and just push mm -hmm. it away. Oh, um, yes. But yeah, Lindsay, you know, I would say that I'm probably with you as well in that kind of outlier in the sense that I I have asked for raises in the past and I have pushed mm -hmm. forward to say, you know, I need to take home more money or whatever that is and to feel really empowered by that. But yeah. I'm also very mindful that, um, you know, there's just so much... Oh, difficulty behind that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so I'm not sure the exact logistics, how they differ in Canada versus in the U.S. in terms of being paid for being a therapist, but it's really tricky here because the insurance reimbursement rates just aren't that great. Um, you're often doing a lot of things on your own. Um, and I raised my rates in October and spent a lot of time kind of hemming and hawing about like, should I do $3 this year and then $5 next year? And I ended up just kind of talking to myself the way I would talk to a client, like, why would you drag out this process to charge your worth and to charge your value? And mm. it doesn't do anybody a service to put yourself on sale. And especially as women, it's so important for us to say, yes, this is my fee. This is what I charge. I feel, and I believe, and I know that my specialty and my clinical expertise is worth it. If this is what you are looking for, I'm not for everybody. I'm not a, um, specialist in a lot of areas, but when it comes to anxiety, depression, and money, 
I know I know what I'm talking about. And it mm. felt really great when I did raise my rates and I let my clients know. Not only did I have no pushback from my clients, but I had one client who said, yeah, good for you. You absolutely should be charging this. And right. it's like, duh, you know, it, it's always, <laughs> it's always so much easier to guide people through that process than it is to do it yourself. You know, that's why, um, it's so great being a therapist because you can see everything so clearly on the outside. <laughs> yes, of course. And I'm just thinking even people in the corporate world, so not necessarily the, the healthcare providers, but being able to go to your management or to HR and to talk about your own worth and what you do contribute and trusting that and knowing that and mm -hmm. taking those risks to put yourself out there because what you know at times what do you have to lose right they say mm -hmm. no and then that gives you more information mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious though it what, what do you think about all of the online accessibility in terms of buying can you what do you mean in terms of buying yeah, I'm jumping all over the place here. So I, I find there is this emotional instant gratification when you are online, you're surfing, you see things on sale and you just click, click, click and you just buy. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That you're talking about like the scrolling and the very targeted ads and yes. all of that. Yes. I, I hear you. And I think it's really tricky. I mean, it's, it makes it so much easier to end up overspending or to end up feeling like you need that one thing in order to complete whatever life you've kind of created for yourself. Um, like I think I was telling somebody, my Instagram ads are so targeted towards me. It's like comfortable walking shoes, <laughs> dog toys, and <laughs> vacations. And I'm always like, Oh yeah, that does sound really great. Um, <laughs> so in terms of, of how we can combat that, I mean, they are doing that for a reason. I don't have to go really into the psychology of marketing and advertising, but yeah. really they've got it down. And really what I think can be the most helpful is just to practice some delayed gratification. So it is really easy to click on that link and it is really easy to throw something in your shopping cart. And that's when I would challenge you before you put in your credit card information, before you enter that promo code, just to set pause, hit pause, set a timer on your phone, like a one day timer, mm. leave that thing in your shopping cart for 24 hours, see what happens when you come back to it. Does it still seem super exciting and shiny and exactly like what you need? And it might, it might really feel like that is the exact thing you've needed. And it feels really good to hit buy. But for often, like often for a lot of us, I go back in the next day and I'm like, no, I don't need mm. all of this extra stuff. So just pausing. And I think that's where the therapy side can come in and you can pause and do a body scan and kind of check in and go, is this really what I need? Is this what I want? Is this going to serve me mm. in the long run? Um, and I'm not opposed to shopping. I'm not a, a penny pincher frugal person. Anybody who knows me knows that I have things that I like and I purchase things that make me feel good. Um, but I, I really think it's about kind of just weighing whether or not it's worth it. Right. So it's this idea then, it's the mindfulness there part of that, eh? It's the being aware of what you're doing in that moment, 
Um, and scrolling is a way of avoiding and numbing out and, and it can be fine at times, right? That's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then when it's impacting our finances or, you know, there, I I always, I have this personal rule for myself that I have nothing in my closet that still has the tank on it. (laughs) (laughs) But you, you know, it's this idea of, okay, I'm, what am I feeling right now? what do I need? Right. So that's tuning into my body, tuning into how, what things are happening on inside of me and then making a decision from there rather than kind of this instant gratification of buying right, in right. that moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And especially I think as women, we also have a tendency to be buyers for other people. Like, oh my gosh. Oh. Um, like I know you're a mom. So maybe like, oh yes. my gosh, this little outfit is exactly what my kid yes. needs and really wanting it. Um, and also like thinking like, oh, I think my colleague would really love this. Or my mom's always talked about that and really getting excited about also being a person who is a giver, who is thoughtful. And I think we can also get into trouble there. So it's not even, oh, I need this new pair of shoes, but it's, wow, I've, I've, really know my friend or I know my parent or my partner and they would really love this thing and how Mm. great would it be to gift them that. Mm, I like that. So being aware of even the kind of your personality piece, eh? the caregiver part and wanting to give to other people and always trying to be ahead of things. Yes, yes, exactly. You said earlier that it's not that anyone can do the numbers. We we know, you know, this much is coming into the house, this much is going out to the house. And you said there's more behind it that you do. Yes. It's, I mean, the, I can sit down with my clients and I do sit down with my clients and go over a, a budget of what's coming in and what's going out. Or I like to kind of call it a spending plan. I feel like that's a little bit more positive than a budget. <laughs> um, I'm going to write that one down. I like that. Yeah, a spending, plan. Yeah. <laughs> spending plan because you're going to spend it anyway. So you can just mindfully spend instead of a budget, which feels so restrictive. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just me, but in my head, that's what works. Yeah, um, I think that's great. That's a mind shift. It is. It is. And it's those little language tweaks that can make such a difference. I mean, that's, that's what we do in therapy. Um, so anyway, so going back to the emotional piece, it may not even be the numbers. So by that, I mean, a person may have a very quote unquote good income. They are not spending more than they earn. They don't have a ton of debt. They are in a really comfortable place and they get really freaked out by the idea of looking at their retirement account or they get really freaked out of just logging into their bank account. And it's less so the ins and outs and does it add up, but more so what does that represent? Why am I getting nervous thinking about retirement? Is it because then I have to face the idea that I will get older? Is it because I will have to face the idea of maybe not working one day? Like what is it about that particular word or that particular account that is really scary and, um, makes a person want to avoid. So it's more around that kind of stuff. It, it sometimes is black and white numbers. Um, but most of the time with my clients, it's something else. There's something underneath it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you've talked about the retirement piece. What other core themes do you see with clients that come see you? Yeah, so retirement is a big one, but I also think you just had odd Dr. Soap when she was talking about Mm. boundaries. I think boundaries and money are really, really tough. 
Um, especially when you add things like culture into the mix. Um, you know, for some cultures, it's really normal and common to go to a family reunion and be asking or be asked to help financially support somebody. It's really common for a parent to support their adult child until, or if that adult child ends up getting married. Um, and for some, it's the opposite. Maybe parents are super rigid about their boundaries and they say, look, I will raise you until, and, and cover your expenses until the clock strikes midnight when you turn 18 and then you're on your own. Mm -hmm. And that can also be really scary and jarring for that 18 year old, rather than doing something a little bit more tiered of like, okay, you know, this year you're going to have to start helping out with groceries. And the next year you're going to have to start paying us rent and eventually helping that child get on their own feet versus, I cover everything and then all of a sudden it's all on you. So those boundaries really come into play when it comes to money. And I also think that um, what I find a lot with parents is this this like really big desire to want to help your kids mm -hmm. almost to the point of debilitating them. Um. You know? Yeah, so really making sure that when we set these boundaries that they are also about in this particular example, let's say we have um, an adult child who's 24, 25, and the parent continues to subsidize them, really pulling away that subsidy so that that adult can then stand on his or her own two feet and be able to say, wow, I do know how to manage my money. I am capable of going out and earning an income. I am capable of managing what comes in and what goes out rather than um, it coming from a place of, I feel like I'm cutting off my adult child. No, you're, you're helping them empower them and strengthen them by creating that boundary. Um, so I think boundaries and money are, are huge. That, that is such an important topic. And I hear that coming up with my clients all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not just money, but oftentimes it is of how much help. So it could yeah. be around money. It could be around, um, you know, helping to care for the grandkids or um, just helping with general life decisions. And at times as parents, and I, I, it's different with my young kids right now, but I know the feeling with my young kids is I will do anything for them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, I hear from the, from people where they have adult children where that still continues. But the challenge with that, that I think you're talking about is that we get into enabling. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that can be really hard because then, like you're saying, then the adult child isn't learning to do some of this on their yes. own. Yes, yes. And I would also say to those um, people who are in the sandwich generation who have um, older parents and mm. children in the home, that is a really tricky space as well, especially if that person who's in that sandwich space is doing better financially than their parents. Oftentimes, then parents can or might say something to them like, well, you're doing better than we did, or, you know, mm -hmm. we supported you for so long. So also feeling that guilt of like, oh my gosh, I, I have to help out my parents because they did so much for me, or I have to help them out because I am financially better off than they are. Like, who am I to withhold money from them? So right. it, it can go in all sorts of directions. Yeah, I can see that. Okay. So, and this also leads, I, I'm thinking you said boundaries, money, culture, this leads naturally. And I was, I was going to save it if we had time at the end, but I can't help but go there. Yeah. Couples. It leads me to think about couples. Oh, yes. Yes. Couples are 
I mean, it makes so much sense thinking about as a couples therapist, some of the biggest issues that come up are sex and money. And I think as therapists, there, there are specialties in sex therapy, but there aren't until now, not Mm, a little plug, people (laughs) who are there to talk about the money piece, Um, especially when you're taking two cultures together, if they come from different backgrounds, especially if you're taking into um, account different socioeconomic statuses, maybe one partner has a lot of debt and maybe another partner didn't have to pay for college. Maybe their parents were fortunate Mm. enough to pay for their college. Um, I know I talk about my personal example a lot, um, but I came from a family of divorce and my husband did not. So for me, the idea of merging money was really scary because it represented, you know, an inability to be independent or to quote unquote, Uh get out. And for him, it was, it was so natural. Like, why wouldn't you merge accounts? Like this is just what healthy couples do. So there are so many different ways in which money can come into play. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to what are, what are these, or this couple's goals? What do they want for them? Is it really important for them to own a house or to have money for travel? Is it really important for them to have children and be able to pay for their college? Is it really important for them to be able to give back financially to their community? Figuring out what those bigger values and goals are, and then kind of working backwards through the communication piece to make sure that each couple, each person in that couple feels like they're being heard and feels like their needs are being met um, without making it a a black and white, this is how we do money and you do it the wrong way uh, Mm. situation. Right. A lot of the work I do with couples is not about um, getting, you know, finding the bad guy and having one person completely give up what they want and need for the other person. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I use that kind of analogy of your co-creating this world together mm-hmm. and sometimes that does mean giving up some of what you you long for and and going with the other person or you know how important that is but really finding that new space that works um, together. So yeah. what are three, I, I was, I'm reading some of your posts, um, mm-hmm. preparing for this, yeah. um, but what are, what are ways that couples handle money? Oh yeah. So you're hinting at the three ways that tend to So I hear mm-hmm. what you guys started to do and what we did. Um, my husband and I, we, we didn't really have a huge discussion about it because we had both thought we'll put all our money together and everything comes together. And that also mm-hmm. means that he took on my student debt and, you know, whatever else came with that. Uh, but that's how we decided to go through it. So that's one way. Yes. Yes. Um, so there are three kind of main ways that people can manage their finances as a couple. One is separate, um, theirs and mine. Mm -hmm. One is a combination theirs, mine and ours. And then one is just ours. And so each of those may work for different couples. Um, I find no matter what, I tend to lean towards making sure you at least have an hours pot, even if it is still theirs, mine, and ours. Because I think that in addition to intimacy, or when it comes to intimacy in a relationship, I think financial intimacy is huge. And if you have these two separate accounts and you don't know what's going on in your partners and they don't know what's going on in theirs, it can feel 
really unsettling. Mm -hmm. So I find it so helpful to have an hours account, even if you continue to maintain separate accounts for other things, just so you can be on the same page financially and have that sort of connection. My husband and I do mostly hours. And then we have what I like to call fun money. And we each get essentially a cash allowance each month. And that means I can spend it on whatever I want and he can spend it on whatever he wants. And there is no judgment or blame or how could you have done this or how could you Mm -hmm. have done that? It's like you have full autonomy over this little pot of money. And if I want to save it up and hoard it all year, I'm welcome to do so. (laughs) And if not, like, it's not a big deal. So that's where we ended up landing. And that feels really good for us. But for each couple, they're going to have to find a balance that really works well for them. And what kinds of things would be in the hours? So if I'm thinking of expenses or things, what would people put in that? I think for most people, what ends up going in the hours is things that are consistent monthly expenses. So things like your rent or your mortgage, things like your utility payments, car payments, groceries, um, you know, pharmacy needs, um, and then, and then you can kind of decide where that hours ends for some people, things Mm -hmm. like clothing and haircuts, um, and gym memberships go there. And for other couples, they feel like that's best done from their individual accounts. But I would say for the most part, it's those big monthly recurring expenses that go together. Mm. The financial intimacy is such a good phrase for that, that really it is about closeness and being able to be open and talk about these things. Yes. Yes. I think it's such, such an important part of relationships is to have that financial intimacy and to set aside time. I think there's something so special about sitting down with your partner and setting long-term goals. And, and maybe even if you find out that your partner's goals are very different from yours. Like what a gift to learn that, wow, for them, they always had this vision that in 10 years they would take a three month sabbatical and go work from Costa Rica. Mm. You know, I think even if you don't end up going that route, you can learn so much about your partner from just saying, okay, what are your, what do you envision your goals to be like? What do you envision our life to be like in several years? And I think you can learn so much about your partner. And it's for me, again, maybe I'm an outlier, but I, outliner, but I find that to be really fun. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And, and if I think of even some of the couples therapy work that, that we do, it is, it is important to be exploratory and to be yes. open and to be yes. inquisitive. And we do that when we first start dating our partners, right? Mm-hmm. We, we're, mm-hmm. we're excited to get to know them. We get excited when they share something through a text and we ask more questions. And then over time, for whatever reason, maybe it's, you know, the kids or other stresses or just distress in general in the relationship, we stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's really important. And, and money, like other things in your life, you can't get away from money. You Mm -hmm. will always have to interact with money, no matter what, even if you're, you know, super, super crazy rich, guess what? You're still going to have to have money coming in and going out. It doesn't matter what walk of life you're in. Money will always be a part of the conversation. Um, and so I just think it's so, so important to continue to include that in your dialogue as a couple. 
So I can imagine that many people who would be listening will say, but I don't know how to have this conversation. Or they might say, every time we talk about money, um, we start to yell and things get heated. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I know you also see couples. Yes. Yes. where, Where do people start? Where do people start? If it has been a prickly topic or a topic that tends to get heated, I think it's really best to carve out time to have that discussion. So you're not doing a drive by like, Hey honey, by the way, I'm going to go, um, on a weekend long trip with my girlfriend. See you later. Like, (laughs) no, that's not probably the best way to have that conversation, but to have just to set that intention when you're already in a good, calm space with your partner. So for some people, that's like when they're, the kids are finally in bed and they have that time and they're like reading on their phones or on their Kindles, that's a good time to say, hey, hon, um, I don't want to talk about this right now, but sometime in the next week or two, I think it'd be really helpful if we could talk about maybe our financial goals coming up or, or about how we're going to tackle that debt. So you don't dive into it then you don't say you, right? You say we, I. So I would like us to talk about how we are going to do this instead of, Mm -hmm. I want us to talk about how you're going to pay off your debt, right? Like that, that already sets up some walls and some, um, areas for defensiveness. So first setting aside that time and then setting aside that time very, very intentionally. So making sure that if you do have children, they're at daycare or they're with grandparents or they're at their neighbor's house. Um, if you have dogs that maybe they're in the other room, making sure you have a good set of time and, and setting some sort of agenda. And I know it sounds crazy for people when I say that, but I think if you don't have a couple of goals or things that you want to talk about, you can get off the rails so quickly. So for each partner to say, okay, here's my biggest concern. I really am getting really anxious about the amount of debt we have. I really want to get on the same page with you to see what we can do to either stop occurring new debt or to start paying down our current debt. And maybe the other partner is like, that's fine. And I really want to talk about how to save money for college or something like that. And if if either partner starts to go off, um, so maybe it was debt and college were the two main things and somebody starts talking about vacation or inheritances or wills, you can say, you know what, I, I can totally see how you want to talk about that. And let's, let's kind of keep coming back to these main one or two bullet points, just like many things in relationships, it's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. So even if you only start talking about debt and college savings, there's a ripple out effect. Mm -hmm. Then it makes it easier to talk about those things like long-term care for your parent or for things like, um, income and expenses. So starting with one or two topics that each of you guys can sort of get on the same page about, and then working your way out there, but having an actual sit down money date is really, really important. Yes. I'm thinking about, I remember, I I wrote down as I'm listening to you, I wrote down vulnerability and shame. Oh, yeah. And, you know, to have these conversations, you are making yourself vulnerable and putting yourself out there. And and shame can come up there. And it's important to label that and say, okay, you know what, we all experience these things, Mm -hmm. that there's nothing to be ashamed of, Mm -hmm. and that it is important to, you know, 
you know, draw back the curtain. And that's the Mm -hmm. best way to eliminate Mm -hmm. shame. And I'm actually thinking about, so during my first pregnancy, um, I really wanted to have a nice dress (laughs) to wear to my baby shower. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And there are just not a lot of nice, well, this was a few years back, but there just, there wasn't anything that I really liked in the city. So I ordered something Mm -hmm. and I ordered a few options Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't, I don't know if I didn't know or I didn't think about it or I'm not sure, but I got hit with a lot of duty. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And then, and then it was coming from the UK. I got hit with duty and then I had to pay for shipping to return the items that oh. I didn't want. And I mm-hmm. felt so embarrassed and I felt so stupid mm-hmm. that I had to spend this extra money. And meanwhile, preparing for mat leave and saving up that money, I was so embarrassed by it that the first thing I did was I hid what happened Mm, and that, you know, mm -hmm. I hid that from my husband and that didn't feel good and it just stewed on it. And so then I had to sit down and I say, okay, I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. This is what happened. And I owned it. And Mm -hmm. we had, we actually had a really great conversation from that. I mean, was it money lost? Yes. And that was really unfortunate. And I had to change and flex some things that I was spending elsewhere to compensate for that. But if I had have kept that hidden, it just would have spiraled into more shame and more hiding and not being able to talk about something that happened. Yes, I think that's such a an illuminating example of how it can go one way or another. Like you said, we all make mistakes. There's mm-hmm. no way that we can navigate through life without any mistakes, and especially financial ones. And we are all going to make financial mistakes, and that is okay. And the, like you were saying, the first reaction is to save yourself from having to admit that you made a mistake and maybe also protect your husband from the idea of money lost or however that dynamic is in your relationship. But you could see how that could spiral, right? So, oh my gosh, I, I overspent on this dress and I had to pay a bunch of duty and I had to pay these shipping fees. And then it could spiral again. Like, oh my gosh, then I went in this like Google wormhole to find the best baby humidifier. And then I end up with five and why do I have five (laughs) and keeping those hidden? Right. Like, and you can totally see how that would happen versus saying, Hey, this is what happened. I know it sounds silly. You know what? Lesson learned. I'm going to double check the, that fine print when it comes to shipping Mm -hmm. and and taxes and all of that and move on. Right. 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 We all make mistakes and that's okay. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned earlier goals and values as a couple. Mm -hmm. And I think this is so important because we know that when we are living in line with our values, with things that are important to us, then we, we, we live a meaningful life. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting because what I value is going to be different from my husband. And will be different from, say, even my parents or my sibling. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's something also really important to talk about is to not maybe get stuck on the money piece, but what Mm -hmm. does it, what's the value of it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about what is the value behind spending money or saving money or putting extra money towards debt. What is the why behind Um, it? Um, And for some people, it's security. The less debt I have, the more secure I feel. Great. Right, that's that, the value. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, for, um, again, I'll just use myself as an example cause it's easier to call myself out. For, <laughs> um, 
my husband and I as well, before we got married, we had different values on how we wanted to spend our like extra money. Mm -hmm. For me, travel was really important because I found that to be, um, a way to explore other cultures and to try new things and to have those fun memories with my partner. And for him, it is vehicles. And for him, there's something super nostalgic about tinkering around on an old vehicle Mm -hmm. and the history of that vehicle. Um, Right. And so it, it, it's not just like, oh, I want to take this fancy trip. Oh, you want to buy this part for your car? Like, that's not it. Yeah, that's what it looks like on the surface. But it's so much more than that. And we, we really dove into that conversation about values, about how do you want to spend that leisure time? And how is that important for you to spend that um, additional money? Mm-hmm. So, so how do you guys negotiate that? Do you guys travel together? Do you tinker with him? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, we try to take one trip together each year and we each take individual trips. I also oh. think that's really important for couples. Yes. Um, I have a big family, so my individual trips tend to be going to visit um, a sibling, um, and he has a lot of friends who are kind of sprinkled all over the U.S., and so his trips tend to be visiting um, a buddy. Um, so I think we we also make sure that each partner is able to continue to live their life individually in addition to as a couple. So that's an aside is is how we negotiate travel. And then when it comes to tinkering, the way we've kind of worked that out is like big I don't tinker. I am not a tinkerer. I'm not a car person. And I've learned to really respect that that is my partner's hobby and that there's more Mm. to it than just that. Like for him, it's mindfulness, it's mental health. There's so much more built into it than just like escaping to the garage. Um, (laughs) So for him, when it comes to big parts, we talk about it together. And usually that'll end up being like um, a birthday gift or a holiday gift. And then when it comes to smaller parts, that's where that fun money might come into play. Um, so if he has like something little that he wants to get for the car that might make me roll my eyes, if it's his fun money, go for it. Um, but if it's a bigger part, we usually discuss it together. Um, and so a really great example of this is we're each in our thirties. So for my 30th birthday, we went to Europe and for his 30th birthday, he bought an old car. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And those were each things that felt really, really good. Um, so that's, that's another kind of way you can do that. I'm, I'm connecting a lot to your story because my, my husband, um, rides dirt bikes and he's for a new dirt bike, but it's not my thing, but you know, it's so important because I I see when he comes back from his dirt biking trips, he goes with his dad and there's a whole group Mm -hmm. of people and you could just see how filled up he is. And, you know, I I know he'll appreciate listening to to this about the, there's mine and ours and having our our own, uh, piece of money that we can spend. Okay. So we've talked about some of the issues that you see with people, but let's even just go back to what is a financial therapist? Yes. So a financial therapist is a person who is trained in both financial literacy and financial, um, education and, 
therapy or the mental health or psychological side of it. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm a trained clinical social worker. So my Mm -hmm. background had been in treating depression and anxiety. And then I went on to get my certificate from the Center for Financial Social Work um, and they bridge the two. So there are um, a few places that offer credentialing. So it's really, it's, it's tricky right now because there is a beautiful thing in our world where you can get certified in a lot of things. Um, Mm. but, um, how can I phrase this? So you can kind of become a coach or a counselor in anything, but, and you don't need a ton of credentialing. Um, there may be credentialing and that's great. And then when it comes to something like this, um, for me, I had to already have my degree in some sort of clinical, um, therapeutic background before I could add on that additional, um, qualifier as a certified financial therapist. And and I do think that's an important piece and, and it's an important advocacy piece that whoever you decide to see, mm-hmm. make sure you understand their training and their yes. credentials. Yes, exactly. Um, because, y- you know, it is your time and it is mm-hmm. your money mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that you want to ensure that you're getting the service that you need. And for some yeah. people, a coach might be, that's okay. But also there are coaching certificates that go with that. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, exactly. And, And then also looking at... Oh, I was just going to say there are amazing financial coaches out there. And I think financial coaches are really great for the person who wants to dive in and is really excited about the the dollars and cents side of things and just needs a guideline and a person holding them accountable. That's a perfect um, candidate for a financial coach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what can people expect to learn from seeing you? <sighs> so much, right? <laughs> I've, I've gained so much information from you today, um, but maybe let me narrow that one down. Yeah. What, what's the average number of sessions that you would see someone? Oh, it's so hard. Uh, <laughs> it's really so hard. So uh, this will be a long-winded answer, and I apologize. That's okay. But it depends. And I know that's the most frustrating answer to hear if you are a person (laughs) who is considering seeking help. Um, but it really does just depend on each person. Um, so I'll use depression as an example. So in traditional cognitive behavioral therapy, it's manualized, meaning you do session one and it looks like this and session two, it looks like this. And if you look at the manual, it could break down really easily into 12 sessions. But for most people who have had a depressive episode or have a loved one who has depression, they know it's likely going to take more than 12 sessions because people aren't robots. We don't Mm. just have depression. We have Mm -hmm. depression plus the stressors of life. We have depression plus a trauma of our past. We have depression Mm -hmm. plus a negative toxic work environment. So it's kind of that same thing with money. Could we create a financial plan that feels really good for you and get you out of here in four to six sessions? Absolutely. And again, only if you exist without any other complicating factors. Mm -hmm. And if you could give three tips for our listeners, what would it be? Three tips around money, the emotions, anything that we've talked about today? Yeah, I would say first, just acknowledge that you do have a relationship with money. Mm. You do. Every single person does, and we all interact with it differently. So first, just 
reflect on what is my relationship with money like. And I think that is a really good starting point. And then mm-hmm. second, thinking about what do I want my money to do for me rather than what is my money doing to control me? How can I take back the power so that I am in charge of the money and I dictate what that money does for me? And that can be so empowering. So what do I want my money to do for me? So what's my relationship with money? What Mm -hmm. do I want money to do for me? And then third, thinking about long-term, whether that what you want that money to do long-term for you, for you. Is it very important again, kind of going back to that boundary discussion to Mm -hmm. be able to support or maybe not financially support a loved one? Is it very important for you to give back, um, to charities in your local community? Um, just thinking about what that greater good can be around money and how you want that to work. So kind of starting, um, very interpersonally, what's my relationship like? Then what do I want my money to do for me? And then what do I want my money to do for others? Those are great tips to take away from. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Oh, you are where, so welcome. Where can people find you? Yes, they can find me on my website, Mind Money Balance, M-I-N-D. And I'm also pretty active on Instagram, as you know. That's how yes. we met. At mind, <laughs> my handle there is Mind Money Balance. And I also have a YouTube channel that I'm trying to push out two videos a month for 2019. So that is where people can find me. Great. Thank you again, Lindsay. I'm so thrilled that we had the chance to sit down together today. Yes, me too. Thanks so much, Tracy. That wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you are looking for more information, head over to my website, drtracyd.com, or you can find me on social media. And guys, I love hearing from you. So head over to iTunes, leave me a review, or send me a DM on Instagram. And remember that These podcast episodes are strictly for informational purposes only and do not substitute for the professional help from another healthcare provider. Take care until next time.